Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. But uh, that's a good question. What, how should I respond? Well, it just, so, it just told me. Do you still consider that something like you didn't get your own way? Yeah. Because what did it just tell me in verse 3? What did it just say in verse 3? Well, elsewhere you <laughs> just read that it says to stay away from false teachers and everything else. Too. What is a false teacher? In the biblical sense of the term, what is a false teacher? Someone who maybe teaches something incorrectly or someone who is teaching heresy outside of the faith. What is a false teacher? I, I understand, but I, I, think, I think that's a good question. Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you something. If, if God condemns anybody who teaches something falsely, in other words, something that's not true, that nobody would teach because all of us have taught something that's not true. Now, what don't, what should we be right on? This this piece here. Now, you know, we we may. I mean, there are debatable topics in the Bible that you know I can tell you the best I understand. I may be wrong. I might be totally wrong. That's why you need to read the Bible for yourself and figure it out for yourself what you should believe. Don't take my word for it. But I I don't think the Bible is talking and condemning those kind of false teachers. The Bible condemns as a false teacher anybody who steps outside the boundaries of the faith and whose doctrine is leading people to destruction or to sin or to something like that. That's the false teacher. And that's who the Bible condemns. And that's who we're not to follow. Okay? But if to take your analogy further, as I've, and I'm, I'm giving you the process I've had to go through as I thought through this. That means that any time I am in a church where the preacher or the pastor says something that I believe is not true, what should I do? Get up and leave. Get up and leave. So what would I be doing? I would leave every church I walk into eventually because somewhere along the line he's going to say something I don't agree with. And what we have today is people who believe just that. I mean, they go from church to church, you know, and, and they live their entire life going from one to another. Okay, so I, I don't think I don't think that that is what it means to be to shun false teachers. The way I would handle and the way I did handle the the situation you're talking about is so I'd ask myself, you know, if I was the pastor, would I do that? And I'll, I'll tell you what my answer would be. It would be no, I wouldn't. I, I, can't, I can't give you a Bible verse that says she's not allowed to do that. But what I, I would be afraid of the precedent it would set in the long term. So it was something I probably would not do. But the second thing, am I the pastor? Well, no. That, that was just an example. I understand, but, but it's, it's a good example. It's a good example to, to, to work through this. And since I'm not the pastor, and it's not, it's not one of these things here, what should I do? Get a life. 
I mean, it says in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourselves. If it's not something impinging here, then it's something that I may be able to share my opinion on. I may be able to say, you know, I really don't think that would be appropriate, but it's not something that I need to get up and walk out of the church service on. My particular friend actually got up out of the church service and walked down the aisle and out the door when she got up to pray. And that's, that's a bad example to people who might be visiting or who are yeah. believers or who haven't read that part of the Bible and think, what in the world is his problem? Yeah. I mean, li I mean literally, he would, he would get up and leave. Any church service that she would get up and pray in, he would get up and walk out. That's doing more harm. Okay. And, and, and he says, you know, well, I think it's false, you know, all this, you know, like the stuff, it's false teaching. I say, I say, get over it. You're not going to stand in front of God and give an account of this thing. Um, you know, you, you need to you need to to set aside your own personal opinion in that, in my view, in that situation, and submit to the authority of the leadership and just get over it. I mean, and there are other examples. There are a lot of examples. Just a wee little bit of a problem. Only because I mean, that might be part of what's wrong with churches today. If, for example, look back at the Baptist church 20 years ago or 30, you know, maybe they were too legalistic or, or whatever, but still you knew where they stood, okay? And now that's all, a lot of that's gone by the wayside. Well, let me. And we're come on <laughs> in, you know. We want to accept that over everybody. And in response, I don't, I don't think that's what he's no. saying. No, I think that there's there's time and place for everything. You know, for for that guy to get up and and to just walk out, not only is it disruptive to the service, it's disruptive to the to any kind of unity of the body of the church at the time. And if it happens, what what, what she does on Sunday morning? She gets up, she prays on a Sunday morning, and this guy decides to get up in a huff and be a big baby, mm -hmm. which is exactly what he's doing. And if he has a problem with it, then he needs to talk to the senior pastor one on one, because that's biblical. Yeah. And then, and then they can deal with it. And and if and if he still doesn't agree, then in my opinion, you need to set aside your own personal liberty for the good of the body. In, in the circumstance we're talking about, yeah. I totally agree with your approach, okay? I'm just saying that this, if you carry this verse out the way it says, almost, uh, it's almost like being accepting of anything and no. everything. No. Just, you know, I don't think that's above others. No, because where you draw the line is on the faith. That's what it is. You draw the line there. You don't step over that boundary. And, and I'll be honest with you. I mean, you want, you know, I'll tell you a guy who really rocked the world on this whole thing is Jesus. I mean, here he shows up in a very legalistic society where men did not talk to women. And he just didn't. A Pharisee, a good Pharisee, did not talk to a woman. And he talked to a woman. All right. I mean, that totally upset the theological apple cart of every Pharisee that knew him. And, and remember when he was in that particular dinner and the woman came in and 
dumped the alabaster box over his feet. And the guy said, well, if this guy's a prophet, he'd know who it was and kick her in the face. Really, I mean, that's what he was thinking. And, and Christ, Christ confronted us, because where did Christ draw the line? He drew the line down here. And he said, all of this stuff that you've added on, all these traditions of men, and that's what they are, these are these traditions of men have obscured what is really important, what is really valuable. See, and, and I, all I'm saying is that, listen folks, I've struggled with this for 15 years working through these issues. And I've come to the conclusion that most of the time, most of the time, people that have left this church, 99% of them, have left because something happened down here and they weren't able to do what it says here, which is to, in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. They weren't able to do that. And they made it a bone of contention and popped out of here in a huff and found out it's no better anywhere else. It isn't any better. And that goes back to how you've said many times all sin is basically the love of self. And somewhere within you that there's yeah. pride and you hit it on the head and you said, you know, am I going to have to respond to God for this? Mm -hmm. If you're not and it's not an essential, then back off. And some people have, have sincerely struggled to work through this. I don't want to, you know, I don't think he'd mind, but I know um, Josh's father, Joe, struggled with this. And and honestly, I mean, Joe's a wonderful guy. He can quote more Bible verses than you can read in an hour. Um, quotes whole books of the Bible. A wonderful, godly man. And he struggled with some of these things. And so, you know, he, he felt compelled to go and see if there was another place. And he, I you know, he was gone, what, six months, a year? And he came back here and said, you know what? This is as good as any. And he's back here now. All right? And he's serving. And I'll tell you what, Joe... I know what Joe believes, and he doesn't believe everything that our pastor believes, all the minutiae of the theological whatever. But so what? Right? That's my dad. I just know things that none of y'all know, and I just laugh and I'm thinking things. You're so right. That's exactly how exactly what my dad is like. So what? So what he went through, he came back, and the thing he just told me and my mom especially was just like, you know what, what does it really matter? It's like, I can get past this. And he did. He struggled with it for a yeah. long time. It was like a big four-month thing. And and there's nothing wrong with the struggle, but he like like he came to his senses, and I sort of I sort of came to my senses by observing other people, you know. Um, but I, I'm just saying, what what's it? What, what, why? Why why is it such a big deal that I get everything my way all the time? It's really not. And, and what you have to do is what it says here, here here's the point. The, the point is, look beyond the minutia and ask, what is the mission and the purpose of the church? What are we here to do? All right? And when I sit there and I listen to our pastor say, we need to be contagious Christians. In other words, we need to reach our neighbors and our communities for Jesus Christ, what is there to argue about, really? I mean, what, 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 what's wrong with that statement? But the argument starts coming in and start putting the how to that. Who cares? Oh, I, I know that. But a lot Did of Paul care? Upset when 
you have a Billy Graham crusade, for example, and you have uh, a Christian rock group or something. That's forbid, you know. Yeah. Or and, and my answer, and let and let me tell you what my response to that is. You know what my response to that is is these may be things that if I was the pastor I may not do, but I'm not the pastor. And it doesn't matter to me. I can get over it. I remember back a while, um, we did a survey um, on Sunday night. Our, our church attendance probably runs, what does it run Sunday morning? 2,000, 2,500, somewhere around in there. It's close to 3,000. We don't keep attendance, but there's, there's quite a bit. Anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 people Sunday morning. Sunday night, we were down to about 300. On a good night. And so a survey was asked. I don't come to Sunday night because, and then you could fill in whatever. And what we did is we decided to do away with Sunday night service, which immediately freaked out 250 of the 300 people that show up. And it freaked out 250 others. And he asked the 250 others, well, what's the matter? Well, we've always had Sunday night service. Do you go? Well, no, we don't go, but we've always had Sunday night service. Then what's it to you if we don't have it? And you go out west, and that churches don't have Sunday night service. A lot of them. Some of them do. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, if you, want a, if you want a Sunday night service, go, go ahead. If you want, if your church wants a Sunday night service, that's fine. But if it doesn't, they're not abandoning the faith. I mean, our problem today, our problem here, honestly, our problem was that that, for example, I was the one that did, I did not go on Sunday nights. Now, why did I go on Sunday nights? Well, let's see. Sunday morning, I teach Sunday school class and I go to church. Wednesday nights, I teach two hours in Moody. Wednesday, I teach two to three hours in Moody. And I said, you know what? I like to just stay home Sunday night. <gasps> Ungodly person, you, you know, kind of thing. Well, I mean, get, what did Christ say? Let no man judge you. We're going to read about this in a few weeks. Let no man judge you in terms of food or new moons or Sabbaths. Goes back to our list of requirements. Yeah. You, know? you need to go to church on Sunday night. So, yeah, where? Where does it say that? Do you know, you know, you know, quite honestly, uh, but they did not always have Sunday night services. It started with the invention of the electric light bulb. <laughs> really, it did. Well, for that matter, they didn't always have Sunday school. Sunday school began in the middle 1850s, right. 1800s. I, the whole point is we get, we, get, we get chained to these traditional notions, and we define our Christianity in terms of those. And then when somebody comes back and says, you know, why are you doing this? We think there's some unorthodox, ungodly, you know, false teacher trying to, you know, modernize the church when really they're just saying, you know, the church never did that. So what's wrong if you don't do it now? Nothing. I mean, that's what Christ did. I mean, that Christ's entire ministry can be 
can be defined in terms of challenging the religious establishment as to why are you guys all doing what it is that you're doing? What's the purpose of it? You get mad at this guy here because he does something on the Sabbath day when you don't even understand why God even gave you the Sabbath in the first place. You've made it a burden on men. Quite honestly, I think if Paul showed up, he would be one of the first ones to come to your Super Bowl night. He talked about races all of the time. He talked about athletic events. I mean, he used a lot of athletic metaphors in his writings. He'd probably be a, he'd probably be a good sports fan. Wherever the sinners are, that's where. You know? And the whole point is, we, we've made ourselves... I think part of the problem is we, we want Christians to show up at our door of our church and say, you know, I was just passing by thinking about how to know God. Can you tell me how to meet him? And, and that's not how Christ operated. You know, Christ did not put up a tent in the middle of the Judean desert and invite people to come down and meet him. He went where they were. He, he went to the centers. We're not allowed to do that. See, when I was growing up, I was not allowed to be around centers because they might infect me. You know, I wasn't allowed to go to movies because that's an evil influence, as Dr. Bob Jones III says. Um, you know, we, we create all of this stuff and we don't reach people for Christ. We have a church service here tonight, or not, we have it now, it's been a few weeks old. Anybody been unhinged in here? What do you think of it? It's loud music. It's loud music. It's, it's a totally unorthodox kind of Christian service that would have most Baptists dying of heart attacks. All right? All right? Traditional Baptists dying of heart attacks. All right? But the whole question is, and uh, it was interesting because Pastor was telling me he's coming back from Denver on an airplane talking to some business guy, a businessman in the area. And, you know, asked, well, what do you do for a living? And Pastor told him what he did. And the conversation got around the church, and the guy was talking about how boring it was and all this stuff. And he, Pastor mentioned about unhinged and about what. And a guy came here to the service. He hadn't been to church service all his life, but he said, I'm going to be there. I want to come to that service. And. What's the rub? What's the problem here? What's, what are we fighting over? You're not allowed to be converted that way. You know? I heard about is uh, the same guy who wrote an article for one of the Cleveland papers. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, what, what, are, what are we fighting? And, and the point here, I don't know. I mean, we could talk about this long and hard and debate and all of this stuff. All I'm saying is that you have to individually ask yourself, have we denied this? See, now I'm not, I don't buy into this total, what they call the user-friendly church, if by that you mean I change the message. If you change the message, you've prostituted the gospel, that's bad bananas. But if you're presenting it in a new and unorthodox way, and it's a responding to people in your community, so what? How did Christ, you know how Christ, 
I mean, I can just see it now. You know, if, if, if most of these guys live in the back of Christ, they'd be back in the time of Christ, they could be complaining about this, this Galilean preacher using these stories and parables and all this stuff. And obviously he's a bad guy because he's not doing it the orthodox way of standing up in a synagogue with the proper prayers and the proper robe on. I mean, they'd be complaining about how Christ was doing it. Yeah, and, and, and not only that, but last night we heard he went to the publican's house and had a glass of wine with Matthew. He didn't need wine for somebody's party. I mean, yeah, I see the very things that Christ was castigated for, we are taking the place of the Pharisees today and castigating people for. Now, if you're changing the message, that, and that goes back, this is so important. If you're changing the message, you've gone too far. Once you start getting together and saying, no, we shouldn't talk about sin because, boy, you know, people don't like that word. Now, you're, now you've changed the message. But I can tell you right now that our David Walls has not changed the message. He has not changed the message a bit. And so what I want to know is where's the problem? And I really haven't been able to find one. Now, some of the Pharisees that have gone on to other synagogues have. <laughs> but I haven't. And the whole point here, and, and listen, the whole idea, how do you keep things being done through strife and vainglory? And that is consider the other person over yourself. So what if you don't get your way? So what? So what? Let each of you look not out, look out not only for his own interest, but for the interests of others. Think about other people. Now that's a novel concept. I think I mentioned to you before how many people I knew left this church because they didn't like the style of preaching. It wasn't exegetical enough. There weren't enough Greek words. There wasn't enough deep theological words being used. Did Christ use deep theological words? He said, you know, sower went out to sow and he threw the seed on the ground. He used a lot of beads and vows. You know, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't use... He didn't use now, I'll tell you what, who could have really used rhetoric and words and Paul, Paul and who else? Christ. I mean, he could, he could have talked for an hour and you sit there and say, what did he say? What did he say? But he didn't. I could have even told him why he did it that way when he created the world. But he, didn't do that. he didn't. He used words that people understood. He used language that they understood. He, he used methods. And... and I wanted to ask these same people, I'm saying if your next door neighbor came in and the message was on superlapsarianism, why it's good, what would they care about? You know, or infralapsarianism, or <laughs> sublapsarianism. Okay, what are those words? Yeah. For those of us who did not take hermeneutics. <coughs> it's not hermeneutics. 
You think you remember? I remember it. It has to do with the order of the decrees of God. Supralapsarianism, and if I don't get this backwards, Supra said that God decreed to save the world. I think Supra says God decreed to save the world, then he decreed to create the world. Now, who cares? But, I mean, there are books and papers and all that written on that. Others say, God, well, no, wait a minute. What it says here, it's, it's the order of the fall. Lapsus means to fall. All right. So what it says is, Supra says, God ordained to redeem man, and then he ordained the fall. In other words, the plan was in effect before the fall. Sublapsarianism says God had the fall, and then he decreed how to save man. And infralapsarianism said he did it at the same time. Well, I mean, it, the whole idea is, you know, we, they, people fight and write big papers and talk about the heresy of infralapsarianism and all this other stuff. And quite honestly, who cares? Who really cares? And the thing I had to ask myself is, I ran into person after person after person that would tell me that the message that was preached meant so much to them and how it ministered to them and how God's challenged them and spoke to them. And I'm sitting there saying, who am I to tell them that it, they weren't allowed to feel that way because it wasn't exegetical enough. See, the, the point is, we're, we're looking out for our own interests. We want it our way. And when we don't get it our way, we think that that's bad because we think our way is the best way. Or the only way. And that is the height of arrogance to think that you're the... You know, I wanted to ask some of these people, they were... It was interesting. One of them is Michael Horton, and they're a real, they're a real um, reformed crowd. And he was on one of his shows called The White Horse Inn. I call it The White Something Else Inn sometimes. But he had this, you can fill in, it's called The White Horse Inn. And it, The White Horse Inn is where Martin Luther, supposedly, they would debate theology. And it's a radio show called The White Horse Inn. And they were talking about um, music and worship. And he had some Gregorian chant or some high. Church, you know, talk about how that was so worshipful and all of that, and, and how we should not stay away from rock and roll and all this other stuff, you know. I'm sitting there thinking, are you you're telling me that you're the first, we are the first generation in the history of the church that got worship right? You're the only one that has it right. You're the only one that's figured out how to worship God that really makes him happy. What about over in Africa, out in the woods, out in the bush, where you have a bunch of names, no one loved Jesus, and they use tom-toms for all things to sing a hymn. Is that, you think God's unhappy because they don't have a pipe organ in the jungle? And the whole problem is, the whole problem is, there's nothing wrong with a drum. There's nothing wrong with a cymbal. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. See, what we've done is we, we somehow think we're the first ones, we got it right. It's wrong to come in and change it. Yeah, I mean, live with it. You, you think God's up in heaven saying, boy, I don't like the worship in Africa. I'm not going to go around there because, you know, they have that tom-toms. I'm going to go to get some pipe organ music. I mean, crying out loud, you know, how silly are we? But yet, I'm listening to this radio show, and these guys are ranting and raving and carrying on about how evil certain things are. And I'm saying, guys, you know, you, there, there are a lot of things that are really more important to talk about than this. Who cares? God 
God looks at the heart. You can have the most beautiful pipe organ in the world played by the most gifted master in a church that denies the deity of Christ. Now, is that going to be worship? Nope. It's noise. It's noise. And you have some out-of-tune piano in some church where they know and love Jesus Christ and worship Him as Lord and Savior, and that's music to God's ears. We just we got it all backwards. We think, and, and it goes back to these verses here, we think we're the first generation in the history of the church that it has all the right answers. And we're not. In fact, probably some other generations had more right answers than we have. And we lose sleep on this stuff. Folks, get a life. Let this mind be in you. Now, he, he, he turns now and he talks about what does it mean to humble yourself? And he says, well, I'll tell you what kind of mind I want you to have. I want you to have the same kind of mind that Christ has. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. You want to know what this lowly mind is? You want to know what it means to look out for someone else's interests and not your own? Well, look what Christ did. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Christ was God. He was God-God. But in the form of God, he did not think it robbery, consider robbery or consider something to hold on to, to grasp, to hold on to at all costs of being God. The word there for the form of God is interesting. It's the Greek word morphe in the notes. And morphe means the internal nature of something. It's the internal thing. It's not that he did not look like God. He was by nature God. The other word there that's used in this passage is schema. And schema means to be the form of. It's the exterior form. This is the internal constitution. This is the exterior form. And what it's saying there is Christ was God not by the way he looked but by very nature, by very being. He was God. But he did not think that's something to hold on to at all costs. What does that mean? Prior to the incarnation, what attributes did Christ enjoy? All the attributes of deity. All of them. But he did not say, this is something I've got to hang on to at all costs. This is something I've got to grasp. He was not only in the very form of God, <coughs> but he was equal with God. This is a definition of Christ's deity. <coughs> but what did he do? Well, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant. The word for no reputation there is the word kenosis, and that goes a very important doctrinal word. The kenosis. And whenever you read that, this is what it's talking about. It's, I think it's a very rare word. It might be only used here. Kenosis, which means his self-emptying. means to empty. He emptied himself. And, and the whole idea there is that instead of grasping and hanging on to these attributes 
and this, this, this place of deity that he had, he set it aside in order to become, and it says here, taking the form of a servant. And guess what word is used there? Morphe. In essence, he became a servant. And he came in the likeness of man. He came in the likeness of man. He identified with us. And being found in appearance as a man, that's the schema. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. What does it mean when Christ emptied himself? Did he cease becoming God? Or did he cease being God? No, he did. Because if had, had Christ ceased being God, what would have happened in the universe? It would have gone back to nothing. He did not cease becoming God. So if he didn't cease becoming God, then exactly how did he empty himself? He emptied himself of the external glory. He emptied himself of his divine prerogatives. If you leave that, we'll judge, we'll grade it for you. All right. All right. I'll make somebody grade it for you then, anyways. Well, they won't. Um, Darren will do it. He'll take care of it for you. Um, what theologians and scholars in dealing with this have come to to understand, he cannot. Can you give up being human? No, you can't give up something that is in your divine nature. So he could not give up his nature of God, his nature of deity. You can't do that. You can't split yourself up like that. So if he could not give up his nature, then what could he give up? The privileges that go with being what he was. And one of the things he gave up was his glory, remember? In John chapter 17, he said, Restore to me the glory I had with you before time began. And he looked forward to receiving that glory that he had. And also, when he became a servant, was he subject to human limitations? Yeah. He was subject to death. He was subject to thirst, to being tired. He was subject to what we go through as human beings. And not only that, but what about those comparative attributes of omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence? He, would, he set those aside as well. He set them aside. What he did is he gave up his rights as God to become a servant. Who made him do it? Nobody. So as he was going through the different stages of being on earth, he didn't know what followed? He may not have. In fact, he said himself, I don't know the day or the hour of my return. Now, it doesn't mean he wasn't God. It means that he was able, for the purpose of the incarnation, to shed the knowledge of that event. And I don't know how that works out. See, that's the mystery. Yeah, that's the mystery. I was, I was wondering when I read the scripture, um, did Christ, when he chose to become a man, and I don't know if you can really know this or not, 
But did he give up anything in the eternal sense? What do you mean by eternal I mean, sense? He's in heaven, you know, and I knew that we were, um, you know, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. But I don't know. I just I, I heard something kind of somebody kind of say this before that he gave up something in heaven, but I didn't get the full understanding of what the message was, and I've always wondered about that. All he gave up was was his own rights as deity, as God. What is one of his divine rights? It's one of the, one of the, well, let's just look at some of these, you know, and we'll get as far as we get tonight, and that's as far as we'll get, you know, and we'll pick up next week where we left off, um, but as you look at the attributes of deity, I'm just going to write them down, you've got uh, sovereignty, you've got um, aseity, which is self-existence, you've got um, holiness, you've got um, his divine justice, you got the omnipotence, and you got um, omniscience. You got his omnipresence. Um, you got these. You got eternality. Um, let's just let's just go with those. Self-existence. Okay. There was no, nothing that caused him to exist. He, he is. Um, when Christ stepped into time, stepped out of eternity into time, did he give up his sovereignty? Yes, he did. His divine power. Well, you got omnipotence. That, that, that omnipotence really means he can do anything. All right. Um, we, there is no really attribute of God that says his holding togetherness attribute. You know. Um, is, that, is it that he gave it up, or that he just chose not to use it? It's not that he no longer was able to. Good question. Good question. In the drama of redemption, did Christ give up his sovereignty? Yes. Yes, he did. He chose not to be sovereign, but if he wanted to, he could have been. Who did he subject himself to? So he gave up his sovereignty. Doesn't mean he couldn't have got it back. I agree. You know, it doesn't mean he couldn't have reclaimed it. But he did not. In the drama of redemption, Christ gave up his sovereignty and subjected himself to the will of the Father. He said, I did not come down to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All right. Now, sovereignly, he did retain command over the angels, over the demons, over the created universe. But he subjected himself to the will of the Father in the drama of redemption. Through the will of the Father. Yeah, he didn't act independently. Did he give up his self-existence? No, he couldn't have done that. He, he can't, I mean, he can't give that up. Did he give up his holiness? No, he didn't give that up. Did he give up justice? How about righteousness? Wisdom? Truth? 
No, he didn't give up any of those. Did he give up his omnipotence? Yes. Well, no. We still go the universe together. He limited the use of it. Right? Was he omnipotent in the sense he could have called the legions of angels? Why didn't he? It wasn't part of the Father's will. So he limited the use of that attribute to that which the Father gave him. Um, did he give up his omniscience? Okay. I would say give up is a bad word. I would sort of say limit. He limited his omniscience, right? He limited himself to what the Father told him and what the Holy Spirit revealed. Did he limit his omnipresence? Well, yeah, you know, you're walking around in a body, that's a little bit different than being a spirit everywhere. Did he give up his eternality? Yeah, he allowed himself to die. But he was just in a human form, so it wasn't... Yeah, so it's not his eternality in the eternal sense, but, but he, he was subject to death. All right? He, he gave that up. Or, I mean, he, he, he allowed himself, because it said he subjected himself to death, even the death on the cross... Um, how about glory? It was veiled, wasn't it? So there was a limiting of the glory. There was a limiting of these attributes. Although, as, as God of the universe, he had every right to have these attributes and use them at any time he desired to use them, he gave them up and subjected the use of these to the will of the Father, to God's divine. Could Christ have stepped down from the cross? Yeah. yeah. If he wanted to be but he didn't. And that's what it means he emptied himself and became subject and even to the point of death, even the death on the cross, not just any death, but the most ignoble death of all. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The name, by the way, is Lord. Sovereign Master. Here's a good question. Did Christ have something after the incarnation he did not have before? Yeah, what was it? He learned what it was like to be a man. But as God, did he get something after the incarnation he did not have before? More glory. It's one thing for God to tell the angels what he's like. It's another thing for them to observe him becoming a man, dying on the cross to redeem humankind, to go back to heaven. And now they can say, now we really know what he means. More glory. God gained more glory. Christ gained more glory after the incarnation than he had prior to it. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. God's exalted him. The point here is because Christ emptied himself, God has exalted him. And what you see here is the way God operates. 
the degree of exaltation you will receive is proportional to the degree of humility you go through and the suffering that you go through. Those who suffer much receive more glory. And Christ gets maximum glory because He gave up the most. See, we don't know what it's like to be in heaven. If we were in heaven for two years of our time, and someone would say, you got to go back to earth now and live another ten years, we'd say, forget it, I'm staying, I'm not going back there. Who wants to work under the hood of a car when I'm up here? You know? Who wants to watch a movie? I got up here, this is great. Who wants to go down there? But, but Christ not only had the presence of heaven, He had all the glory and all the power of the universe, and He set it aside. He came to earth to be born and to die, the worst death of all. And you need to think about this passage. It'll, it'll make you stay up at night. Why, and why did he do that? Did he have to? Did God the Father make him? God the Father did not make him. He willingly did it. Well, we'll pick up with verse 12 next week. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.